Hi, welcome to Making Sense of Complexity, featuring conversations with complexity science practitioners and philosophers. Our goal is to share insights on how to make sense of our complex and uncertain world. Today our guest is Daniel Sanderson, a writer and blogger on science and philosophy and the founder of Planksip, a philosophy and cultural media outlet for nonfiction authors and academics. Let's get started. Hey Daniel, how are you doing? Fantastic, George. Yeah, it's nice to see you today. Um, and I always start by asking my guests um, where they're calling in from and what's the weather like? Oh, um, well, I, I'm, I'm sitting to a, I'm to my right here. I've got a, a, a beautiful window in my home office and uh, it's clearly uh, the sun is shining and uh, uh, I'm from and live on Vancouver Island, which is on the Pacific coast of uh, British Columbia. Uh, so it's pretty good. Yeah. Great. Great. Yeah. Um, I'm in Colorado at the moment and it's uh, kind of cold and a little bit breezy. The clouds are scudding by, but it's uh, pretty nice. So uh, no, no bad signs of climate change here today. So that's good. That's a good sign. So before we got started, I just wanted to say thank you for inspiring me in getting started on this podcast series and for agreeing to serve as an advisor. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're certainly welcome. Um, I want to start by having you give the audience a little bit of your background and how you got into philosophy. Well, I would, I would be what you call an amateur armchair philosopher. Um, as I've uh, moved out of the business arena, I started my own media company and uh, delved into philosophy quite heavily, as, as you're aware. And... Um, it's kind of dovetailed in, uh, into, a, into, into a passion and informs a lot of uh, what I create and, you know, in the direction that, that the overall media outlet has actually taken. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's uh, talk a little bit about Planksip because it's, uh, you know, it's a great concept and it's turning into quite a, an astounding collection of, uh, of works, some that you've written, a few things that I've added and some other people that you've collected together. So talk for a second about Planksip. Well, Plank, uh, if you break it into its um, uh, two con constituent parts, a Plank is um, uh, an organic platform and SIP is kind of like drinking a hot cup of coffee. And so with those two visuals in mind, we wanted the, the, the platform to be an organic experience. And we wanted to challenge what consumption meant. Uh, and what it could mean. So as a bibliophile myself and, you know, just somebody that loves books, um, I want to encourage other people to consume in that way as opposed to uh, consumerism consumption. And, and I think when, when, you, when you put a, uh, a platform in place where we can have meaningful human interactions, uh, you know, good things happen. So that, mm -hmm. that's really kind of the, the nuts and the bolts of it. Yeah. And it's, uh, as I said, it's got a lot of good stuff on it. Um, so just in very general terms, how would you define philosophy? You know, philosophy is one of those words that like makes people cringe a lot and they get really nervous about, oh, where are we going? But uh, it doesn't really have to be that way. And I think you have, a, you have an attitude about philosophy that's um, helpful. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 some of the um, 
like truisms or the cliches that you've heard with philosophy, like, but they're absolutely true. So the love of wisdom. Um, and of course, what does that mean? And it gets you to think about things like uh, justice and ethics, even love uh, and, and uh, complexity, right? So really this um, idea of philosophy is something that, uh, as Plato said, begins in wonder. And if, if you're wondering about things and you're trying to question things in a healthy way, um, philosophy can be your best friend, hmm. you know, and if yeah, you so it just trying to, it, right, right. And trying helps. to, trying to, uh, I mean, you know, the title of this podcast is making sense of complexity. And so the making sense part really is pointing to philosophy. It's, it's what we all do to try and make sense of stuff. Right. Yeah, and I think that would be without trying to uh, assert any kind of domain over the rest of the, you know, the complexity sciences, which uh, I know you're aware of, um, are, are, are quite impressive um, and on the cutting edge of knowledge, right? So uh, philosophy doesn't try and uh, uh, like maintain any sort of dominion over these um uh, this, this, this growing category of, of science. Uh, but what it is, is a, a really important constituent, I think, and really helpful, uh, you know, for people who are, you know, wanting to think deeply and use, you know, um, logic in their, in their, mm -hmm. in their thinking patterns. Right. Yeah. And one of the ways people talk about philosophy is, well, it's a search for truth. Um, so what do you, what are your thoughts about you know, mm -hmm. what that really means when somebody's about to search for truth. Well, on a broad scale, I mean, we live in a, a very multicultural community and by community, it's a very pluralistic. So we've got online communities and we've got um, uh, local communities and we have all sorts of ways for people to network uh, together. And um, by way of example, I think of one particular uh, person that came and comes from an Eastern tradition of philosophy. And from their perspective, uh, the West uh, has, and I mean the tradition of Western philosophy, has a preoccupation with the concept of truth. Um, and, uh, you know, that might dovetail into, uh, you know, a scientific emphasis or tradition, um, but doesn't have to, right? But mm. it's just the the you know the metaphysical approach or the emphasis on truth in terms of living the good life right so um that is something that when we understand that we are uh a collective of all sorts of people and cultures that you know there's um not a subjective interpretation to truth but emphasis in terms of how it um you know can lead to a productive healthy life right yeah, I, I like the way you put that. It's you know leading to a better life. So it's it's uh, it's something that can be used as a as a guide to um, to a better life, a happier life, uh, as opposed to defining it you know with a capital T like it's absolute. It's you know um, you know which all of us tend to do, and some traditions have more strongly than others. Yeah, yeah, and you've used the phrase I think. Uh, truth um uh, and then you know as 
uh, backed up by, you know, by evidence. Um, so there's got to be something, you know, something telling you that this is something worth paying attention to. Hmm. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, I think, you know, when, when we first started, you said, you know, sometimes, you know, when you introduce the philosopher to the party, you know, people will kind of groan and they think, oh, man, because, you know, you know, do we want to have a conversation of the nature of evidence and what constitutes evidence? And it's it's really sometimes like this is kind of the bad rap that happens for philosophers. Um, and and I think sometimes uh, philosophers uh maybe spend too much time on that. I think that we can convey intention and meaning uh, in, in a very broad sense. So I understand where, you know, where you're taking this. And mm. I think that, that, that uh, individuals have an ability to uh, process information in a, in a eusocial way that is for, you know, the benefit of relationships on something as simple as a friendship, which is massive, huge, or you know the interplay in societies with um, uh, there's a term called eusociality, which mm -hmm. is uh, a really important term that really emphasizes what it means to be human. I can make that mm -hmm. much of a, a claim about that. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. I want to get into that, but I want to uh, back up a second to this concept about truth. Is you know you can sort of visualize it, and I think some philosophers do as you know the the a statement of you know fact based on evidence uncontrovertible this is the way it is it's like you know the capital tree it's like you know nail it against the wall and uh and i think your concept is much more of you know it's a process it's an evolution uh, it's not that it's not that there's certainty in what is being determined in this exploration of philosophical concepts, but it's a it's a really a, an evolutionary process, right? So it continues to grow. Mm. Partially, right? I mean, if we really, really put me under the mark on, under the microscope and uh, uh, and I had to answer, um, you know, like yes, your honor, kind of thing, right? Like the official. Um, but you're right. I, I, I think a, a good response would be that um, if you if you look at the history of science, there's still um, the holy grail of science is to be able to discover, right, discover um, something universal, something that is um, uh valid today um just as valid in in you know in ten thousand years right and so you know the 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 relationship of the pythagorean theorem right this is mm -hmm. is one of these examples or um even though newtonian law has been you know upended and improved the basis and the foundation of these things start to build on each other right mm -hmm. and so that is the thread that we as a, a civilization can look to and say um, we have something to build upon, right? And so those may finesse, finesse, but they don't completely upend themselves. If that if that mm -hmm. makes sense, right? It's not yeah. a complete relativistic yeah. sort of bottom. It, it has um, patterns that are that are recognizable and 
really pull back to the ability, uh, a, a human ability to project and form patterns in and through abstract thought. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, you made, a, you made a distinction, which is an important one, I think, about um, like mathematics, Pythagorean theorem or you know, the, the truths of mathematics, which are just obviously true by definition, the way, the way mathematics works, as opposed to empirical science, which is based upon observation and evidence and testing and, you know, trying to, trying to find a way to explain what's, what's actually going on there. And so those, those are, those are two very different kinds of activities. Mm -hmm. And, um, we'd like to have, clear and firm answers, but, you know, and we have that maybe in mathematics, according to the definitions, but it's not something we really get in physical science. Well, they say that, you know, mathematics is God's language. And, you know, I, I, I like that illusion uh, or illusion, right? I like that. I, I like that idea of, of, of being God speak in yeah. mathematics. I think there's, there's a beauty there that's. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I think I, I, <clears throat> I know I've told you, I, I once upon a time, believed that uh, mathematics and logic was the pathway to true and absolute knowledge and it was a great way to go. Hmm. Um, and then I later learned that there are problems in even mathematics and logic, uh, things that are uh, undecidable, uh, things, things that are going to be incomplete. You can't ever complete the puzzle. Um, so, um, you know, that's even in math and logic, it's not necessarily as absolute as we might like. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to I wanted to pick on the word you used a little while ago, you you sociality and just ask you for just a simple definition of that uh, of that word and what it means. Um, yeah, it's not. OK, so the definition of uh, you social is. Um, a species working together, right? And so, as a human species, um, we have we part of what it means to be human by definition is the fact that we we work together and we cooperate. Um, Eo Wilson is a is a really good example of somebody that's uh, championed frameworks around you social behavior. Uh, yeah, and it, it's interesting. And he, he started, and many do, with studying ants, which yeah. are a lot simpler <laughs> than humans. But yeah, yeah, and the ants are are, are very uh, deterministic, very structured, hierarchical uh, automatons. Um, and there's something quite different in what it means to be human. So the particular brand of eusociality, as it mixes and merges with uh, the, the, the individual nature and ability for, for individuals to project ourselves into, into the world is, um, is quite beautiful. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, the self-awareness, um, is, 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 is quite spectacular and amazing, I think. Yeah. And I think the, uh, What's interesting is this is a piece of complexity science. Um, eusociality, beginning with, you know, the study of uh, the simple insects, insects and ants, and how they became to be the bees, and how they, you know, they they may not be uh, conscious or reflective in the way humans are, but they working together um, in uh, in the patterns that they have, they do pretty spectacular 
uh, things, building colonies, um, diversification of labor, uh, very, very specialized kinds of things and, and communication, even the way bees communicate with each other very, very specifically about direction and where to find food and stuff like that from, from simple beginnings. So I think this is the complexity science piece of it where the activity of the individual units um, can't seem to explain the very intelligent behavior of the system as a whole. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, this is one of E.O. Wilson's big points. And, and, uh, and then following up on what you were saying, when you look at humans, very, very sophisticated individual units, but we uh, were built to be social. You know, what other people think uh, makes a difference to us. And so those relationships become a key part of what ends up building those relationships into a larger whole, which is the society that that we know. So it's a it's very, very important concept. And so so your uh, concept of eusociality, um, you know, how does that how does that fit into your personal philosophy? Um, I would say that it's it's not so much that it's um, part of a personal philosophy. I think it's a nod to the uh, the greater claim and the need that we have for um, for uh, a better integration of, of biodiversity. Uh, integration, that's an that's a, that's a incorrect word, but the idea is that, that biodiversity is, is very important. important. Uh, we are not in any way separate or distinct from, from the environment that has actually, that we've emerged from. And so the, the wisdom that seems very, very apparent to me is that the study of eusociality, not only uh, amongst and amongst humans, is uh, it's also how we, we interact with our larger environments and other species as well, right? And, and I think that that interplay and that huge complex system <laughs> is, is, is what um, really marvels and really puts me into a state of wonder. Um, and I think we, we owe ourselves um, the attention that it deserves to spend the time to, to think about what it means to, to, to uh, live on a, in a, on a planet with, with, with that kind of um, mm -hmm. uh, healthy environment. I think that's really where I would go with you sociality for sure. Yeah. 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 And uh, 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 I think we mentioned earlier E.O. Wilson as a um, uh, wonderful mind and a great scientist started in uh, with the idea with looking at ants and entomology and building up these concepts of uh, social behaviors. Um, you and I spent some time on that uh, subject uh, last year. Um, would you uh, take a moment and just talk about the, you know, the work that we did and the podcast that we put out? Oh my, George, my friend, it, we're going to summarize our whole season of podcasts into <laughs> to a sentence. But you know what? It was a great friendship. Hey, why don't we start with that, right? And um, we had a, a, a convergence of sorts uh, in and around a, an idea called consilience, which was a term that uh, uh, E.O. Wilson used in his one of his books, but was 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 brought to us um, by the same man that came up with the idea for science, the word science, not science itself. But um, this is um, 
William Wewell, or Ewell, I, I'm not sure mm -hmm. on the pronunciation, but um, mm -hmm. it's um, uh, the idea of it is a coming together, a jumping together. And I think one of the things that I've noticed in healthy dialogue in, in, in around this idea of consilience is that the intention is to try and bring together. Um, and there are a lot of naysayers to that type of project uh, in terms of let's keep them distinct and separate. Uh, the best example would be in a university setting, the arts and then the sciences. And where E.O. Wilson seems to be um, very courageous is to say, let's see how we can bring those two mm -hmm. worlds together. Yeah. Uh, and it, he started. Yeah. He started by talking about even the silos between, you know, the scientific realms in the universities. You know, you have your, your physics and chemistry and biology, and they're kind of separate domains, and there's not a lot of interaction between the between those domains. In part because because of the method of reductionism by which you find out more by diving deeper. So it becomes more specialized and, and the language and the jargon is different. So now you, you know, and he was, he was not a, uh, he was a fan of trying to bring together the sciences, physics and chemistry and biology. And then by extension from those learnings, moving on into how does this explain, again, through you, sociality, social behaviors and art and history and all those other aspects of the human endeavor. Um, yeah, so we spent, uh, I think it was 10 or 11 uh, hours episodes on uh, looking his, his book, uh, uh, Consilience, and um, we also added in the complication of consciousness, which is certainly a, yeah. a difficult topic. Um, <clears throat> yeah, let's just pick some really, really challenging ones, right? Yeah, yeah. that was fun. Yeah, and there's a there's a parallel to my mind about complexity science itself um, because it's a it's kind of a smorgasbord of techniques and and uh, areas of inquiry. Some in the physical sciences, some in the biological sciences. You mentioned biodiversity as as one, and then the social sciences. You know what arises out of you sociality, and and then the techniques that have been in, uh, kind of developed to try and understand that. Complexity science is finding there's threads across all those disciplines. So, in a way, complexity science itself is a, is an attempt at that consilience that um, that E. O. Wilson was uh, you know was so committed to. So, um, so that podcast series that you and I did, which is available on YouTube, on the consciousness and consilience uh podcast um was kind of a predecessor to what you know to what we're trying to do now with um taking a deeper look at complexity science and and how we can you know make sense of it all so um so i think that's a good segue i wanted to move into um kind of the the question again from from your philosophical background you know, what is important to the project of making sense of things, making sense of the world and making sense of life? And, you know, there are some terms in the, the philosophical literature that would be helpful to be able to um, talk about. Um, some of the listeners may be quite familiar with this, others, others less so. So I just wanted to 
ask you to kind of run down those areas that philosophers would typically say, well, you, you kind of need to think about this if you're really going to make sense of things. So um, do, you want to, do you want to start down that road and just see if we can begin enumerating what, what's important to making sense? Mm. Well, I think um, epistemology is a great place to start and uh, what, uh, what constitutes knowledge, right? Um, this is uh, uh, a really important um, conversation to have. Uh, justice, love, these are really mm. important. Uh, mm. Before you before you move on, I want to take I want to take some time to dig into epistemology. Oh, like, okay, all right. That's okay. epistemology. <laughs> okay, that's a fancy term for. Um, how do we know stuff, mm-hmm. right? How is it that we know stuff? So, um, you know, that's not a simple topic. Yeah, and um, one of the things that uh, the tradition of philosophy has done is that it's it's given us, uh, uh, I would say, a arguably a, a progressive framework to see how... Um, uh, knowledge has actually um, been described by various societies, and what it what it actually means, what what knowledge it actually means in terms of its um, its value in society, right? Mm. So, um, what true knowledge is? Now, Aristotle, for example, he uh, and Plato, uh, which are you know, quintessentially the, 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 the birth of the, the Western tradition, I think, okay, mm-hmm. um, uh, along with Socrates, and then the, the Hellenizing of, of, um, of the West through the conquest of Alexander the Great. Um, this brought um, uh, a disrupting, settling, uh, I would say, benefit to the emergence of a, of an awareness of, of a society and it's very closely coupled to what knowledge is, right? Mm. Um, cause there's a, an aspect to knowledge that I've been thinking about lately that, um, could disappear, right? So civilizations in the past, uh, due to something that may be no fault to their own or, in the instance of, uh, say, a, a, a conversation about climate, uh, it is uh, something that is, is uh, brought on by our activity. The shame would be that if um, large swaths of knowledge uh, would disappear. And so there's, even if we define knowledge, um, there's the threat that it might not be with us into the future. And that's something I've been thinking about quite a mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting if you look back uh, at, uh, you know, the human species and what we've done, there was a period of time when all knowledge was oral knowledge that was passed on from one individual to another. Mm. And that clearly limits the ability to, I mean, we do have a lot of brain storage. And if you look at the, the oral uh, traditions, they're an amazing, I mean, the, uh, even in the early Greek period, I think there was a there was a dissatisfaction. Was it was it Plato that was 
unhappy about the written word because it uh, uh, made people lazy. They didn't have to memorize things. They didn't have to know things uh, uh, exactly orally uh, in the way that was traditional. Mm. Um, and then we move into a period of time where we have written language and then ultimately the Gutenberg, Gutenberg Press and um, and then uh, codified in, well, originally in papyrus by the Egyptians, you know, so knowledge could be accumulated in a different form. And, you know, and we now live in a world where, where access to any knowledge or what people claim is knowledge is just, uh, you know, a couple of clicks, clicks away. So um, it, you know, if people thinking about, you know, what about what about that knowledge that, you know, how could we lose knowledge today, given that we live in this kind of an environment? Mm. Um, but you only know what you're paying attention to, right? Oh, I have something that's kind of inspirational. Uh, I, I'd like to share it with you. And there's there's two points that I want to talk about. One one is uh, one of my favorite thinkers uh, who, who passed away in a, the last couple of years, in addition to E.O. Wilson, who's one of my favorites. But there's... Um, uh, a literary critic by the name of George Steiner, who was, he advocated uh, quite heavily for memorizing. Okay, mm. so he was um, uh, a, a Jewish academic who uh, still had family memories of the atrocities and the, the, the horrific nature that emerged uh, out, of, out of Nazi Germany, right? And basically, um, everything could be taken from you right everything every worldly possession could be taken from you but if you can memorize knowledge and in that same mechanism of you social spreadability or transmission mm -hmm. that can still mm -hmm. be spread no that can't be taken from you mm -hmm. and that pulls back to i think what what you're referring to in the emergence of 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 um I guess the the transmissibility of of um, uh, what, am I, what am I going to say literature, yeah. but like knowledge and you know this type of thing. It emerged from like the poets, the bards of of uh, mm -hmm. the Homeric epics and the stories of Gilgamesh. These types of things, these oral traditions, were passed down, as we know, um, mm -hmm. you know, through social groups. And then it's really interesting to study what part of the information transfers what mm -hmm. transfers when you have trans when you have like transposition errors or multiple authors what is the thread that pulls through right mm -hmm. what is it that we as a eusocial species can species can galvanize around and then use as a um a valuable thread to reflect not only on our own human nature but also give us some sort of tools to project into the future. And mm -hmm. um, I think that's sometimes lost a little bit in our current condition of mm -hmm. exploring complexity. Mm -hmm. um, complexity, um, I personally would like to see a little bit more poetics in complexity. And that sounds a little bit odd, but there's a famous um, concept from, uh, from, from Shelley, the poet, uh, who said that the poets are the legislators of society. And so that's really interesting to me. And there's a bit of a contradiction because I think anybody that knows and follows Plato would say, you know, he's against the poets, 
I'd like to leave that aside because it's not really relevant in, unless we really mm -hmm. opened up the conversation. Mm -hmm. But this mm -hmm. idea of imagination, this idea of where does the beginning of the ideas come from, it, I, I, I feel it really comes from a, um, uh, like a poetic, uh, a sense mm -hmm. of the muse, a sense of wonder. This is, this is the beginning of, of something that, um, you know, this is where it emerges from, I think. And yeah. Yeah. So in, in a way, this is a very broad conversation about knowledge and, this points out that there there may be the knowledge may be in the form of facts, mm -hmm. which theoretically you can write down and pass on, and that's empirical sciences are are, are built on that concept. But then you also have values mm -hmm. or value, and then and then you have meaning from those values. A meaning in the sense of you know your you know how you define yourself your ethics, how you behave, what, you know, what do you need to do to, you know, to be better and to, mm -hmm. and to improve. So, so this is an example, epistemology is not just a simple, what are the facts, you know, yeah. it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think that's a good example of, of a philosophical kind of inquiry where you're not, you know, you don't, you don't just, you know, write an answer down and think that that's it, but you really need to inquire and ask. Um, so I think that was a good, a good epistemological exploration. Um, and, um, but it does seem that we are accumulating knowledge, right? We're, we're accumulating scientific knowledge. Um, and, um, you know, some of that knowledge, uh, I mean, I, I know, Different people have different opinions about how much knowledge we have and how much we can gain. So again, this is a question about epistemology. There's another concept in in philosophy that comes up a lot, and that's ontology. You want to take a second and take a crack at ontology. Yeah, ontology is just um, is the, the simple word is being, and um, you can take a, a look at uh, the thicket of Martin Heidegger's work, where he takes the concept of being uh, as uh, moving into, being thrown into a, a being or ontology, or you could take um, something a little bit more literary, like uh, Shakespeare, you know, to be or mm -hmm. not to be, what, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and the questions that emerge from, you know, from, uh, you know, from that uh, uh, literary genius. Um, the idea of ontology is something that I have, have um, been thinking a lot about recently. And the reason is, is that um, from a computer science standpoint, um, ontology means something very specific. It, we, we, we look at on a computer, uh, we look at ontologies in a computer system or in a, like a mathematical system. Um, as something that we can fully and completely replicate. So once you have that and you replicate it in another system, that's the ontological framework for you know for the for the computer system. And I think that's really interesting. So it it it, it starts to open up the idea that there can be multiple forms of ontology, multiple mm -hmm. imagined forms of ontology, multiple um, 
verifiable uh, and valid forms of ontology that um, that can make sense, you know, to mm -hmm. us. And mm -hmm. that's really interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. And I, I go back to sort of the classic uh, view of the world from the, the physical world being what's there, you know, the ontology of a physical world as uh, as what is being, what exists. And, um, and uh, that can be looked at in lots of different ways. And I think the traditional way is, okay, there are particles, you know, the physics, physics, particles, forces, gravitation, all of these things affecting everything. And there are people that believe that that is the only ontology and everything else builds from that. That was kind of an argument in E.O. Wilson. So that ontological framework, you know, looks one way, but when you start looking at complexity science, the idea of particles and forces just doesn't play the same way because now you have component units that build a system and the system is very different from the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. So uh, now we get into maybe a different kind of a, uh, way of thinking about ontology because there are these emergent phenomenon that happen, different kinds of behaviors. It, it's you know very much more complex. And there are relationships between uh, the, the, uh, what appear to be objects. And maybe there's a relation, maybe ontology is really a set of relationships, mm -hmm. not the thing that we think of. I mean, we, you know, we think of a chair as a chair, it's an object and you can build philosophies around, you know, those kinds of ways of thinking about objects and categories and, and qualities. And, um, but if you start thinking about the chair as a relationship, something you, you sit in, it's a whole different, now it's a whole different prospect because it's relational. So again, ontology is a simple word, but in the philosophical exploration, it becomes really quite quite complex, quite quite um, challenging, and, and it requires an exploration process. Are you, anything else you want to add? That's to a good summary, ontology? that's interesting. I, if I may, I, could I ask you a question? Sure, sure. Can. We, You're we, used to that. Yeah, we've started to have the, you know, we went, um, you know, we've, we've defined, well, discussed knowledge and ontology. Um, how would you think that uh, aesthetics, this is another really important thing, so a sense of beauty, how would you think that all, that do you think that beauty ties into both existence um, and knowledge? Do you think there's a, a component to beauty that... Um, that, that, that brings the, those, those uh, two together? Yeah, that's a good example of a philosophical question. And I, <clears throat> I remember there's a book by the physicist Frank Wilczek uh, about, um, I can't remember the title, but it's, it's really something about beauty, you know, mm -hmm. the, the beauty of the world. And he's a physicist, and he kind of takes it from a physicist standpoint, and the beauty of the of the mathematics, and the elegance of the mathematics, and the and the beauty of the uh, the structures that are, uh, you know, their evidence in, in creation. And uh, it's a little hard to tell. He he might actually be a, still be a determinist, but he's seeing beauty in something which other people would think is just a bunch of abstractions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for other people, beauty and aesthetics is something that's deeply felt personal 
you know, personal thing. It's it's a relational thing. You know, you have a relationship with a work of art. It inspires things. It you know causes feelings, causes memories to appear. So it's a relational thing. Um, so uh, I, in terms of the philosophical side, I don't have a clear opinion about where uh, aesthetics comes or where it derives. Um, and I think that's you know part of what uh, you know going forward we have to talk about things like that a little bit more the complexity of even something simple like you know what what's pretty what's beautiful how do you define it what is it why is it that way um, in a way it goes back in part to the use sociality argument it's collective you know there's a cultural set of the uh, inspirations that people have built through their history and a family and that helps define what they feel is beautiful and on the other there's you know there's the physical construction of the eye the evolutionary history of, of humans and the creatures that came before us and and that predisposed us to see certain things in certain ways well it could also be a way of looking at aesthetics so did I did I duck the question okay? No, you did it really well. Um, I think it's a very standard approach, but it's one that perplexes philosophers uh, because there doesn't seem to be a baseline to agree on. And that mm -hmm. was hopefully something I uh, wanted to chat with you about is the, the mm -hmm. baseline from which it emerges. Um, one yeah. thing that I've been working on um, recently uh, is the starting point of beauty. Mm. And I'm, I'm making the claim that it's uh, a biological substrate. We may not be aware of it, but this builds on the idea of um, a neuroscientist by the name mm -hmm. of Antonio Damasio. Mm -hmm. And um, he talks about a concept called homeostasis. So you have something um, as simple as single cell organisms that will move away from a threat towards a state to a state of homeostasis mm -hmm. and I think that this is the fundamental underlining um, constituent to uh, uh, consciousness number one but uh, which which Damasio makes the point on but also I think beauty mm -hmm. um, and so um, what we categorize as beautiful um, it, what we're aware of um, as beautiful um, isn't, uh, you know, doesn't have a necessary starting point, but it's all mm -hmm. emerged from that cellular uh, level to move towards a state of homeostasis. And, um, and I would say to maybe sum up something for the listeners, um, the pleasure pain principle um, is 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 paramount uh, to mm. that that concept right mm. and it's it's noticeable in everything from um, plants to single cell organisms mm. to complex systems um, and uh, I think that I think that's kind of where where we need to we need to look yeah, I think E.O. Wilson talks talks a little bit about that as well in his in his work. Um, um, uh, well, what about ethics? You know, uh, you you know, you're you've questioned where where the baseline is upon which you make aesthetic choices and decisions mm -hmm. and the complexity there. 
Um, ethics is another key area of philosophical inquiry, trying to define what it is that is good, uh, you know, good choices, you know, and what the ethic, ethical and moral considerations are. So any, uh, any thoughts about sort of ethics uh, as it relates to the, the topic? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come from a position of, of goodness, which is um, Plato. Um, I think that the, the idea of goodness, especially in and of itself, is something that is um, inherently ethical. Okay? We have a natural tendency towards good. Um, uh, and I think there's uh, mathematical models that, 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 that prove eusociality in that way. But there's also mathematical models that, that will show that we will punish for the sake of punishing, <laughs> which is really perverse. But the overall mm -hmm. is that the direction of humanity, I like to think, is a, uh, a force for the good. If not, uh, to summarize it, the force for the good is even um, a, a strong desire to survive, right, and flourish. This is, this is where I think the... Um, the the concept of um, of ethics really derives from very fundamental as well uh, with 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 the goodness because it puts a hierarchy of of virtues and value into a philosophical framework and so we have a tendency to dismiss it uh, this idea of good in terms of well, you know, this pan is good, or this is good, or this ice cream. It just we literally trivial trivialize the whole, the um, uh, you know, the value of having a um, an ethical system built into mm -hmm. um, in, into our philosophy and uh, mm -hmm. our way of life. And I think that um, you know, Plato was very good at was very good at um, you know bringing that idea uh, to light. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, ethics, key area of philosophy, uh, very complicated. Lots of lots of different ways of, of approaching it. If not something that has a, a black and white answer, which I think is what the the main point is. It, it's it's not like there's black white black and white answers. We have to realize there's an openness to it, and there's an inquiry that we have to we have to do. And I wanted to follow up on a specific issue. Um, my sense is that the the science of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries had a based on Newtonian physics and the concept of you know everything has a reaction, equal and opposite reaction, and defined by mathematical laws. You know all the motions of the objects. You know created a sense that you know geez we've got these laws, we've got these objects, and if we could know the starting. Uh, position of every of every one of these objects and we have the mathematical laws Newton's laws you know um, you could figure out the future mm -hmm. and <laughs> yeah. um, that was a uh, Laplace's demon which was uh, I guess 1814 when he came up with that is the idea of this demon that would had perfect knowledge of the initial conditions and you know boom it's all done right yeah but yeah. it's determined <laughs> yeah. and so determinism is a thread in uh, philosophical thinking among some. 
And uh, yet it kind of leaves a, a pretty big hole about the concept of free will and the ability that we have to act and to make a difference in the world. So, so that's a specific philosophical dispute and issue. And just like to hear your, your take on that. Um, I, wrote a, I wrote a book called The Free Will Debate. And basically, I find these, this conversation, and no fault to the questioning that you brought up, I find them very frustrating because um, a, a, a centralist position, which we could, you know, for the sake of brevity of the conversation, just say that a centralist position uh, really has one side saying exactly the same, th sa same thing as the other side. And they actually really converge. And so there's... Um, although there is a discussion and a seeming dispute, um, you know, I, I, I try and stay away from those kinds of arguments uh, because, um, you know, we have agency. Um, mm. And if it turns out at the end of the day that we're um, automatons in a part of a larger scale unfolding of the universe... Um, that is even like uh, the, you know, the butterfly effect where it's, it's not predictable and it's really um, unpredictable, a flux of like nothingness, so to speak. Um, the question could arise to say, well, should we for our own sanity just make something up <laughs> and, and live by these rules? Um, I tend to say, yeah. <laughs> right like you know let's let's call pretend pretend and let's call what we know reality and if that challenges us then it just keeps us asking questions and i think that's that's really really important yeah it's uh, i'm reminded of the movie the matrix which obviously mm -hmm. posited a, a sense and it's it's uh, that issue of Oh, there are a couple of funny issues in philosophy here about, you know, zombies, which are, um, you know, thinking beings that have no, uh, no self-reflection, no consciousness. Um, but you also have the same thing of, of uh, the idea that we're in a, we're, we're in a, uh, we're in a simulation. Mm. It's not real. You know, we're like a computer simulation. We're just inside of some giant you know, machinery of, of the digital ones and zeros and all that stuff. And so, um, and kind of, it's kind of like you're saying, well, so what? Because we have these interactions, we have these experiences, we have these choices, you know, it's as if we are living in a real physical embodied universe so we might as well live that way. Whether it's a simulation or not, it's kind of irrelevant to the question of how we choose to live our lives. Is that a fair? Yeah, and I'd get a lot of criticism for that kind of a response. It seems to be like um, uh, like giving up or, you know, um, you know, kind of, yeah, just kind of giving up on, on it. But I don't think that's the case. I think the idea is that... Um, this allows us, this description allows us to work together, to storytell, um, uh, to build on lineage, which is one of the most important words right now in the idea um, of cultural evolution. So coming back to this jumping together of disciplines, uh, the arts and sciences, 
And that um, word of lineage, when you couple that with culture, we're now talking about a pragmatic of sorts. Okay, how do we pragmatically transmit this information down through future generations? And the, I'll bring it back to the nature of knowledge. If the nature of knowledge is to say, here are the set of facts, that's very hard to codify in consciousness. It's very hard to have an experience with a fact. It's really hard to feel inspired by a fact. I'm not saying it's not possible, but in the words of somebody like... Um, uh, well, I won't, br I won't bring up a quote because I know I'm going to butcher it. So what I will say is that we have the ability to make something new. And this is something that I really, really encourage people who want to explore and experience philosophy. Um, you don't have to be an expert on every thinker from it, Plato on forward or Socrates on forward. You don't have to, and it's not about knowing what they said or that's part of it, but it's also, well, what, you know, what, what do you derive, not only from your own experience, but as you plug into these philosophers, what experiences can you make new and how can you derive? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, mm -hmm. One of the reasons why we call a classic a classic is because we can keep going back to it. Albert Einstein said it's called research for a reason. It means you do it again. You go back to it. You look at it again. And so if we go back, we research, we re-look at things, then you're going to find things like Albert Einstein did. You're going to find things like maybe we can look at um, the shortest distance between two points um, and think of a different way. We can imagine it differently and then we can try and reconcile that in the world. And just maybe, just maybe you'll find something. Um, and it, this is when you're speaking the language of the gods. Totally mm. metaphorically, <laughs> not to get anybody all upset at me because yeah. it's you know, but it, it, this this is this is absolutely beautiful to me. That that's yeah, that's yeah. amazing. So it's uh, you know you can revisit the classics and learn things new every time you do. Absolutely, right? yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so um, I wanted to uh, kind of make a transition and just uh, ask about. Um, what is so we've talked about science we've talked about philosophy uh and you know what is faith mm. and i wanted to start by just asking you know did you grow up in a particular faith tradition mm. and uh maybe how has your view evolved as as you've you know grown and thought and explored philosophy and learn more about science and all that sort of stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I'd like to open it with um, something that I think um, is pretty important. Uh, to me, a well-balanced society will take a look at the wisdom that comes from older generations and, uh, and the emergence of new ideas that come from younger generations. So to kind of get our grounding here, there's um, 
a real understanding that a physicist's best work is in his early 20s. That's that's where you're um, the quickest in terms of your thinking. You're the most proficient in terms of mm. output. It is it's like it's like the golden time period for somebody yeah, who's in yeah. physics. I've heard that math, mathematicians peak at 26. Yes, yeah, something like this, right? Yeah. And ironically, yeah. or no, not not ironically, very compatibly, the uh, the the the, the prefrontal cortex only fully develops at that age as well. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the same for both men and women, but um, I know that, that, that men, that's about 25. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I think happens is that when we think we have a complete understanding of the world in a, say, our young 20s, uh, as we start to get older, we realize that maybe that's not quite right okay and if that's not the case i think there's a there's a lot of hubris and assumptions built into that i think i think that naturally there's um things that change even on self-reflection as you become an older person and you reflect on your youth you're going to say oh if i knew now what i knew then these kinds of things right so Mm -hmm. Um, wouldn't it be ideal if we could tap into the wisdom of our elder generations in a way that maximized not only utility, but love and happiness and beauty and wisdom, you know, to mm-hmm. its, um, you know, full capability. Now, I think that that number one is an ideology that's not um, possible simply because there are historical forces that are beyond a generation of birth and then death. There's types of unfoldings in history that may find us in a very uh, uh, warlike civilization or a a civilization where there's great um, austerity or great um, inequity. Um, And those um, actually inform the derived meanings that we actually have. Mm -hmm. Now, um, this sounds like a really roundabout argument or um i guess like description of something when all you asked me about was you know what my my thoughts were on faith and so here's how i would kind of bring it back together is that um the codifying of this larger um encompassing type of knowledge um is is to me our our best attempt is those is that word god and um, we can never get um, completely in sync with her. I'll use that just to be a, a little mm-hmm. pokey, right? But anyways, mm-hmm. um, although I could make the claim as a matriarchal um, uh, foundation to it as well, which is kind of fun. Um, mm-hmm. But anyways, um, I grew up as somebody that was in a... a relatively secular home with um roots in i would say well christianity but probably utilitarian or not utilitarian (laughs) unitarianism and Mm -hmm. uh or or the ethic of a lutheran work ethic you know these kinds of things Mm -hmm. so it's like we believe in god but we don't really know why we believe in god and it's Mm -hmm. kind of up to you if you want to go to church and you know you kind yeah. of do it if you want to do it. So that mm-hmm. that's kind of how I was brought up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's symptomatic of a culture that really doesn't have um, problems or doesn't have great stresses that 
has a lot of freedom to do what they want. Um, when the other shoe drops, I think, you know, things tighten up and I think people turn to more of a spiritual structure because they've been around for generations. And right. I think that we are living in a time period right now where that's exactly the case. Um, mm. If you were to ask me about, uh, I'm going to give you two examples. Um, when I knew it all as a young child, as a young teenager, I remember having a conversation with my grandmother and I said, oh, it's silly. It's ridiculous. There's no such thing as God. If God exists, why blow all these kinds of things. Right. And, um, uh, although it's not a, it's not a, um, an earth shattering response, it is kind of a felt earth shattering response. And this is what the response that came from my grandmother was. She says, well, when I die, I would like to think that I will be able to see you and my family again. And so there's that smart ass teenager looking at her going, <laughs> what do I say to that? <clears throat> Right. What? What? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. And there's stories. What do you feel about it? Yeah. What do you feel, do you feel well, about I, it? I mean, yeah. I'd love that to be true. Um, yeah. And I read something on a social media post just today, and it had to do a, it had to do with um, euthanizing animals. If you're and there's lots of animal lovers out there, including myself and George. I know you are as well. Um, there's times, you know, just because of our. Um, our, t our, our, our lifespans is that we, we, we kind of live with animals in a way that they, we outlive them and we have to suffer through their, through their, <clears throat> through their deaths. And if you're ever in a situation where you had to euthanize an animal, um, the, the point of this one particular social media post was that you should be present for that because the stories from the veterinarians, uh, was that they, describe this like searching for um you know who they love like it could be they want you there mm -hmm. right they mm -hmm. they want those last seconds to be you know they're they're yeah. searching and they're saying you know be be with them you know yeah and uh, just a, just a sidebar um uh when my kids were young we had that experience two dogs um one developed bone cancer had to be put down and it and and it was right to make that a family event the vet came out we said goodbye we had a little ritual and uh, and we buried the animal together afterwards and um uh today one of my sons is uh, finishing his studies to be a veterinarian mm. yeah yeah and imagine, okay, so now George, this is, this is why I love, this is why I love you, George. <laughs> I could say this is why I love talking to George, but this is, this is why I've got a real affection for George here because um, now you get the concept that, that your son or daughter, uh, your son is a veterinarian? Son, son. yeah. Um, he has now everything that he needs <clears throat> to bring about real goodness in the world like real mm -hmm. substantive goodness. And it could have been uh, partially because of this, but because of many mm -hmm. other things, right? Mm -hmm. And this seems to me to be a description of something that is, is a real good in the world. And 
if he has that ability to do that, we're actually talking about trans-species eusociality. We, we have mm-hmm. dogs that are the closest uh, to us in terms of species. That's why they call them man's best friend. And mm-hmm. they communicate to us in ways that are uh, beyond language. They have somewhat of a language apparatus, but mm-hmm. they communicate to us in ways that... Um, if you if, if it's just remarkable it's just remarkable mm-hmm. you can observe how animals react to you and you know they they ha- they mm-hmm. have real personalities they um, display affection and yeah. you know they're yeah. and so that's yeah. fascinating to me and yeah. and I applaud that I applaud that that yeah. value has been impregnated into your offspring <laughs> to be very and I think you know, that's I think it is for that's yeah I think it is yeah. you you had you had your grandmother do that for you so uh, uh, we're gonna have to wrap it up okay. but I I just want to tell you I I really appreciate this kind of framework you have created for thinking about faith again not as black and white dogma not as you know firm committed to this but as something that involves a complex trajectory of personal experience, cultural experience, the shape of what you grew up with and in and how that affected you and how you responded to it. So again, this is part of a complex process that doesn't have a fixed answer. And that openness and and being able to bring that openness with us into any inquiry is kind of a, a bottom line for being able to get to the best result, call it at the end of the day. And I want to thank you for putting that on the table so eloquently. Thanks for appearing today and for your uh, wonderful comments. It's my absolute pleasure, George. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Making Sense of Complexity. Next episode, I will be talking to Sam Barton, philosopher, host of the Talk of Today podcast and the product lead for Idea Market, an online marketplace for ideas. Join us as we discuss the ethical implications of complexity science. In the meantime, please explore the websites of our collaborators, Complexity Weekend, PlankSip, and Talk of Today, and join the conversation on our social media outlets or on spiralinquiry.org. Stay well and have a great week.